Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Just picking up, I believe, where you guys left off. I was just talking with Brandon about his text from last week, and I think we're going to leave, uh, pick right up where he left off. We'll be in uh, Acts 4, verse 32, all the way through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. So if you would turn there, and if you would allow me in my, in my church, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. I don't know if that's how you do it, but if you would, please do that. Beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And a great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, maybe two of the most difficult topics to preach on in the church are the topics of giving and of church discipline. Brandon has assigned a passage to me that deals with both of these things <laughs> in one place. How convenient for him to let me 
do this? And as I thought about this, it's like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna tackle this passage with a church that is not my own? It requires so much nuance. It requires so much, well, you gotta keep this in mind and you gotta keep this in mind. And I thought, what would I title a sermon like this? And I thought of this, the first thing that came to my mind, give or die. <laughs> I thought, well, Maybe that's a little radical and probably not very true to what's actually going on in the text. So I went with Brandon's title, which is Gospel Generosity. Our, uh, one of our pianists at church, he said, you should say give or live, not get, well, but the text is dealing with some pretty extreme things. I'm actually very excited um, to talk about this passage with you this morning. The book of Acts provides us with a great picture of what the church is supposed to be like. And any church would do well to look at the description of what life in the early church looked like as an example for them. I think especially for a new church that's just a little over a year old. What an appropriate book to look at, which I'm sure is why Brandon has chosen it. You've already seen that The first Christians, after they heard this gospel, which was proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, um, that they believed this gospel, they repented of their sins, and then they were baptized and added to this church at Jerusalem, a local church in the city of Jerusalem. But what did life in this local church, the first megachurch, really in the world. What did life in this local church look like? Well, we get a summary description in chapter 2, verse 42. You're probably very familiar with it. We're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which we just saw an example of, and to the prayers, which we have observed yet here this morning. But what does it look like to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers? Well, I'm not going to go into all of those four things. The, the book of Acts deals with them, and Brandon will deal with them in due course as he hits them. But we have a specific picture of what fellowship, devoting yourself to fellowship, looks like in this passage that's in front of us this morning. The word translated as fellowship in chapter 2, verse 42, is koinonia, a pretty familiar Greek word to people. Maybe if you're new to the faith or new to this church, you've not heard of that, but the word translated fellowship is koinonia in the Greek. And the reason I use it is because this word koinonia means maybe a little bit more than what you think of when you think of the word fellowship. It is a rich and a dynamic word. When you think of fellowship, what are some of the ideas that come to your mind? I think a lot of times things that come to people's mind are potlucks, ice cream socials. I've heard twice the bribe of food um, given to you to show up for certain events, and that is, that is fine. When we think of uh, fellowship, we think of hanging out and spending time with one another, and certainly food and time together are a great avenue to be able to do the things that we are called to do in the Lord. But eating and hanging out 
is a little bit of a limited perspective of what the Bible means when it talks about koinonia. There are three or four ways that the Bible speaks of koinonia. Two of those are drawn out in our passage this morning. So I'm not even going to attempt to give an exhaustive teaching on koinonia, but I do want to draw out the two things that are in this text. First, koinonia is a relational reality. It's a relational reality. And secondly, we see that it involves generous giving, or what I'll call gospel generosity. Those are two aspects of koinonia that I want to look at. The first one, just very briefly, and the second one in some more depth. So let's start with the first aspect of fellowship. It's a relational reality. When we think of fellowship, we often think of activity, something that we do. And there are certainly a number of actions, we're going to look at one of them in particular, that are required of biblical koinonia. But in the first instance, in the foundational sense of the word, koinonia, fellowship, is a relational reality, not an activity. Actually, that relational reality becomes the basis on which the activity flows or comes from. Our fellowship with one another, this relational reality that we have with one another in the body of Christ is based on the fellowship that we have with God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, for example, Paul talks about how when he preaches the gospel, it creates a fellowship, is the word he uses there, a koinonia between him and those who hear his message. But then he goes on to say, but our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So do you see the connection there? Because of what Christ has done in, in saving us, he has brought us into communion or fellowship with him. The God who has existed eternally in relationship with himself has broken down that barrier that stood between us because of our sin, and we have been reconciled to God through Christ. We are now in relationship, in union, in communion with God. And it is that that is the basis and the picture of the fact that we're not only in relationship with God, but also with one another. We are a part of the body of Christ. We celebrate communion which is a picture not just of the reconciliation that we have to God but of the reconciliation that we have one to another it's real if you are saved you are in the body of Christ there is a unity that exists in reality now we have to grow into that reality through our activity do you see how those things work together well, why is this important? This is going to be so critical as we look at this drastic example of judgment in chapter 5 to remember this. Why is it important to get this right? Because our fellowship with one another is intended to bring glory to God. When our koinonia is seen, is on display, and is experienced, in the church, we, we reflect something of who God is and of what He's done to save us to Himself and into 
the family of God. And when that reality is seen through our activity and our relationship, God is glorified. And that's why He saved you. That's why He created you. So we've seen that our fellowship with one another is a relational reality. Let's now look at the second aspect in our passage of biblical koinonia, and that is this. Biblical fellowship is a gospel generosity. A gospel generosity. I think you'll see what I mean by gospel as we go on. But the reality is this relationship. The activity is this generosity that flows out of it. We're told in verse 32 to state again that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but that they had everything in common. That one heart and one soul is speaking of the relational reality. You see? It's the Spirit of God. We're told in Ezekiel um, that when the new covenant came, that, that God would give them one heart and He would put His Spirit within them. And so the fact that we're told here that they are of one heart and of one soul is evidence that the Spirit is in them. And so that half of the verse is referring to that relational reality. Then it goes on to talk of the generosity. And it says, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This word common, a little bit more language instruction. I think you can all get it. I don't like to talk about Greek a lot, but this is simple and I think it's helpful. The word common in Greek is koinos. It's the root of the word koinonia. Generosity, having things in common, sharing with one another, is a manifestation of this relational reality of koinonia. They had everything in koinos because they had this relational reality of koinonia. Do you see the relationship between the two? So in Romans 12, 13, Paul calls Christians to contribute to the needs of the saints. That word is koinos. In Romans 15, 26, Paul says, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make the contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Again, the same word, koinos. In 1 Timothy 6, 18, Paul says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. The word share comes from koinos as well. Koinonia is a relational reality, but it is also a practical activity. We are called to be generous to others specifically in the body of Christ. Remember what Galatians 6.10 says, do good to all people. Do the coat drive. Do good to all people but especially to those who belong to the household of God. We are called to share with the saints. Have you ever thought about this topic that is so often taboo in the church? Have you ever thought about it 
is part and parcel with fellowship? That's the way the Bible conceives of it. Fellowship. If we are to love God, we will, in fact, love others in the church. And if we are to love others in the church, it's not just going to be some, some feeling that we have. It's going to be an action that we take. And that's going to involve sharing with those in need. Being generous specifically with our money. Other aspects of koinonia involve being generous with your spiritual gifts and partnering with one another in the gospel. But it also involves giving. It's a dominant theme in the New Testament. In our passage this morning, we're given both a positive and a very negative example of this. The positive example is seen in Barnabas giving, the negative in Ananias and Sapphira. So what I want to do now that we've laid the foundation is I want to look at this positive example. I want to look at the negative example, um, which from those will emerge a number of principles about koinonia and giving. And then I want to turn to a few practical um, steps in this topic as well. So let's start with the positive example of Barnabas. We're told that he was a Levite and a man of Cyprus. Whenever you're reading your Bible, don't miss details like this. This is the Word of God, and they matter. And I think you'll see why they matter in a second. We also know that he's a landowner. Why? Because he sold a field and then gave the money from that sale, put it at the feet of the apostles, and then they distributed that to those who were in need in the church. This teaches us a couple of things about koinonia and God generosity. First of all, we learn that there's nothing wrong with having wealth. But what Christians shouldn't do is view the things that they possess as ultimately belonging to them. If they are full of the Holy Spirit, if they, they belong to God. And as a person grows in their relationship with God, they come to realize that everything they have is a gift from God. It belongs to Him. It doesn't actually belong to them. The Lord may bless, but it comes from Him. And when we begin to see that our possessions, whether great or small, are all belonging to God and coming from Him, it makes it easier to give them away. But if we think that we own them, then it becomes more difficult to give them away. The other thing to point out, and I think this is very intentional in the book of Acts and in this passage, is that spirit-filled koinonia crosses social and cultural barriers. Barnabas was from Cyprus, not Jerusalem. So he's different culturally. Now he's a Levite, so racially, ethnically, he is the same as most of those in the church of Jerusalem. But culturally, he is different. And those of you, you've experienced this. We can be of the same pigment of skin as somebody, but culturally very different from then. He is different culturally. Not only that, he is a wealthy landowner. Barnabas is of the upper class within this society. Those who owned the land within the first century 
they were in the upper 5%, maybe the upper 3%, depending on who you read in terms of class. There was even a greater gulf in that day in the, in the pagan world between the rich and the poor than there even is in our culture today. We're seeing that in America, this greater gulf between the rich. They're getting richer and the poor, they're getting poor. It was even more pronounced in that day. But the gospel bridges the gulf between color, between culture, and between class. One of the reasons your church is called the bridge is because you believe that. And you want it to be on display in your gathering and in your life together. So often, community, it's this buzzword. Everybody wants community. But what do they want community around? Social activity and social status. But that's not Christian community. Christian community is distinct because it doesn't unite around color, culture, or class. It doesn't unite in cliques around special interests or occupation or life stage. Anybody can do that. Show up at a, at a local high school and you'll see all kinds of community going along with who? People that are just like one another. Christian community is distinct and that the common and the dominant denominator is one thing and one thing only. That is Jesus Christ. Barnabas is an example of biblical koinonia and gospel generosity because he gives to those in need within the body of Christ those who have believed the gospel he is rich but he gives to the poor so that there won't be needy within the church you will always have the poor with you but there shouldn't be poor people that can't have their basic needs met within the church and so that's going to require that rich people cross a social border in order to care for those who don't have the same means as them. He's from Cyprus, but he gives to those in the church in Jerusalem. He's a religious man, a Levite, but he gives to the common man, church of Christ. Christ was the common denominator and the dominant denominator between Barnabas and those who were in need. He gave to those who were in, his in the family of Christ. It's a relational reality that motivates gospel generosity. My daughter Hattie has busted open her chin three times and required stitches um, in each of those occasions. And every time, I just so happened to be at the office whenever this happened. And I received a call. And I left what I was doing at work. And I came home and I took care of her. I took her to the doctor to get stitched up. Does that make me a super dad? Does that mean that I showed her charity? No. That's just what family does. That's what it means to be in a family and to love one another and take care for one another. When you give to the church of Christ, it is not some act of charity. It's an act of family. You see, the rate relational reality, the koinonia, is what drives the generosity, 
the koinos of having all things in common. Our koinonia is intended to bring glory to God because it reflects something of who God is and of what God has done. God has reconciled us to himself, Jew and Gentile. God is generous in giving his only son, Jesus, the one who left heaven to come to earth, the one who was rich in glory, yet became poor for our sake. He laid down his life on the cross for our sins. He has made us now one with God. When we show gospel generosity to those in the church who are in need, irrespective of color, irrespective of class or culture, then and only then will we reflect the glory of God. If it's just based off of interest and things that we have in common outside of Christ, the world can do that. Well, we've seen a positive example of giving. Let's now look at a negative example. Ananias and Sapphira are a contrast, a stark contrast to Barnabas. Now, at first glance, it doesn't look like a stark contrast. There's a lot in common in these two stories. They sell a piece of land as well. They lay the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, presumably to be distributed to those who were in need. But there's a difference. They held back some of the proceeds of the sale and kept it for themselves. But what we find as we keep reading is that really wasn't the main issue. That, that wasn't even wrong in and of itself. Peter tells them that, um, that they had the right to own land. There was nothing wrong with that. So we see that the first picture we get is maybe not a complete picture. It's not like everybody who was a Christian sold everything that they had and pulled it into a pile so that there would be some type of Christian communism that was going on among them. People were doing that, but they weren't required to do that. And it's not even likely that everybody was selling stuff or even likely that people that did sold everything that they had. Peter says, you have the right to own land. And if you sell it, you have the right to keep some of the proceeds for yourself. This is an important lesson for us. This teaches us that giving a certain amount isn't required. Giving is a voluntary act. That's what makes Barnabas' act so remarkable. Giving is a voluntary act. Paul says that we're called to give what we have decided in our heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what made their actions sinful? They were deceitful. They lied about it. It was an issue of the heart. But not only did they lie, we we're told that they lied to the Holy Spirit, that they lied to God. This is a great verse for showing that the Holy Spirit is God. In the first verse, it tells us that they lied to the Holy Spirit. Then it tells us that they lied to God. Instead of their heart being filled with the Holy Spirit, of being of the same heart and soul with one another as Barnabas was, we are told contrastively that their heart was filled with what? Satan. Instead of the fruit of the Spirit bearing fruit through their generous giving, the fruit of Satan was born out in their lives. What does Satan do? He deceives. 
and he takes glory for himself. And that's exactly what they were doing. They weren't serving the family of God. They were serving their desire to be famous. They were deceitful because they wanted to be seen as spiritual. You'll see that in Simon um, the magician a little bit later in the book of Acts. It's very consistent. But why does God give such a drastic consequence for their sin? We've seen that it was sin, but why the drastic consequence? He struck them down dead. That's a little severe. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I think it has to do again with the glory of God. And that's why I've been pointing this out so much along the way. In 1 Peter, which you guys sung about a little bit earlier, Peter refers to the church as the chosen people of God, a holy nation. What that means is that the church is to be set apart as a display of the glory of God. We're called to glorify God as we reflect something of who He is and of what He's done. And that happens in our life together. But when God's people don't live set apart lives that reflect something of who God is and what He has done. And when they then refuse to repent of that sin, they must be put out of the church. A hard truth but again, a repeated theme throughout all of the Bible. Now, the chance to repent is not real clear in this passage, but I think it is there. Both people are confronted, and Ananias and Sapphira, both individually confronted by Peter with the question. I think they're given chance to repent, but they choose not to. They continue to lie and to deceive and to misrepresent the situation. When people refuse to repent in the church, we are called in Matthew 18 to treat them like unbelievers. We are called in 1 Corinthians 5 to even put them out of church. Paul ends that section on church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 by saying, purge the evil from your midst. The church is not perfect, but it is called to be holy and set apart and when people do not live their lives in a manner consistent with the grace of the gospel and then they refuse to repent it's not that they'll do it perfectly but there is this theme that the people through a right process should be put out of the church when we don't deal with unrepentant sin in the church the glory of God and the good of his people are at stake. That's why we must not be afraid of church discipline. Now I'll admit that in Acts 5 it's a little more drastic than church discipline. And I think the reason for that is that the early church early on they needed to get this principle. They needed to see all that was at stake here. They needed to see how seriously God takes unrepentant sin and that he insists on the church being holy. They needed to see that they were called um, to reflect God's character and do good. They needed to see how important fellowship was in the body. And they got that message. We're told twice, verse 5 and verse 11, that a great fear came on the church and of all who heard the report. We need 
to see the same thing today. That God calls his people to be holy and that if his Holy Spirit is in them, he will then do that work in their lives. Well, we've learned a number of principles about gospel generosity today. Primarily, that fellowship is a relational reality. We don't simply do fellowship. We have fellowship. We are called the body of Christ and the family of God. This relational reality leads to the practical activity of giving. Just if there, That's the basic message of this passage. I want you to understand that. We've also seen that our fellowship with one another in the church is not based on class, color, or culture, but Christ needs to be the common and the dominant denominator of our fellowship. We've seen that generosity is voluntary, not compulsory. We are to give cheerfully as we have decided in our heart. We've seen that generosity involves caring for those in the family of God. It's not for our own reputation. And that koinonia and generosity are for the glory of God and the good of God's people. These are the principles that we've learned. I now just want to look at three practical suggestions of how to go about doing some of this. Some of these will come from the passage. Actually, one and a half of them from the passage. One and a half of them will come from other passages. Just for your consideration. First, our giving should be primarily to the local church. In our passage this morning, we see that Barnabas and the others laid their money at the feet of the apostles, and then the church distributed that money to those who are in need in the church. Now, that is not to say that there's anything wrong or that you shouldn't from some from time to time give directly. You hear about a need and you give directly to that person. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that I think um, primarily and the main way that we give should be directly to the local church. And then that local church through its budgeting process, through any benevolence um, policies that we have, through the elders, the deacons, however you're set up, then that money is distributed. The reason, one of the reasons for that, quite practically, is simply the leadership in the church have generally, not all the time, but more knowledge of what's going on and where the needs are. I don't think we're being commanded to do that in this passage, but I think we see a picture that there may be a priority to giving to the local church first. Second, we should give regularly. This passage teaches about giving to the poor in the church who are in need. We see other passages like this in Acts and in Paul's writings. And in particular, in Corinthians, Paul calls the church at Corinth to put aside money on the first day of the week so that when he comes, he can collect it to take it to the church in Jerusalem. I think there's a picture here of giving as you gather for worship and giving regularly so that there's money that can accumulate so that when a need rises, it will be there to give. Third, our giving is not only for the needs of the poor. That's the dominant picture here, but it's not the only picture. We also see, for example, giving to pastors and to missionaries is a dominant theme of giving in the New Testament. Think of Galatians 6, 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 
In 1 Corinthians 9.11, Paul says, if I have sown or we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You should not muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. Sure, our giving also goes to support all kinds of other ministry in the church. The primary things that the giving is to go to is to taking care of those in need in the church, taking care of those who minister the word, both here and abroad. So those are some principles and practical applications for our giving. Now, in closing, I want to end with a story that I hope drives home the point that this has to be a result of the transformation of the Holy Spirit within our lives, not something that we just manufacture or conjure up. Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol is one of the most famous stories of all time. And even if you've not read the original, you're probably familiar with the story, even if it's the Donald Duck version. Most people know the story in some way of Scrooge's conversion, his transformation from a killjoy to a philanthropist. It's heartwarming. It's engaging, and it's relentlessly entertaining as well. I'd like to read two paragraphs from Dickens' original novel so that you can see this description of this transformation. I like literature, so please indulge me if you would. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red as his thin and his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. So the description of the old man. This first description makes the description of his transformation all the more stunning. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh and little heeded them. His own heart laughed. And that was quite enough for him. The reason the Christmas Carol has retained a, a, a place as a perennial favorite at Christmas time, according to Pastor Mike McKinley, is that everybody loves a story of redemption. But McKinley goes on to say, still, we all know that things like this do not happen in real life. Leopards don't change their spots. People don't learn to love after a lifetime 
of wickedness. The Ebenezer Scrooges of the world do not suddenly become Mother Teresa's, right? Or do they? The Bible seems to think that this is exactly the kind of change that occurs among Christians. One of the most important changes that always accompanies true faith and repentance, a true indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is growth in a genuine love for the people of God. Inasmuch as you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done to me, Jesus says. In fact, if this kind of change is not accompanied by your conversion, is not growing in you, I think there's some reason to ask the question as to whether or not you really are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. First John does that. Those who have fellowship with God have fellowship with other believers and they will show that fellowship in their gospel generosity in the local church. It's the result of the Spirit's transformation in our lives. And when this happens, when this spiritual fruit of our generosity happens, it's on display for all to see and for people to experience within the church. So that God can be glorified as it's seen and God's people can be blessed as it's experienced. May it be increasingly so at this church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Cut deep to the heart, but it also builds us up and encourages us. And so I pray that as we think on the cross of Christ, the generosity that he has shown to us, that that would be the thing that motivates our generosity for others. That we would love because he has first loved us. That we would look to the needs of others because he has looked to our needs in his death and resurrection. May your spirit work in us that which is pleasing to you in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, in his name we pray, amen.